We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. Really looks funny out there to see my glove out there, Jim. Jimmy Moore, get back yet. Okay. Good morning, Gordo. Yes, how are you? How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? By cooperating together in these new realms of infinity. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 65 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Jiminy 6 and 7 with Wally Sherall, Tom Stafford, Frank Borman, and Jim Lovell. Rendezvous. The mostly successful missions of Jiminy 4 and 5 set Project Jiminy firmly on the path to reaching its major objectives. Jiminy 4 and 5 helped set aside fears that astronauts might not be able to survive long periods of weightlessness in space, and they held out the promise that rendezvous could soon be achieved. Now NASA turned to plans for the rendezvous and docking missions of Jiminy 6 and for the final long-duration flight of Jiminy 7. Both of these flights were scheduled before the end of 1965. The goal of five manned flights in a single year seemed phenomenal, compared with the experience of Project Mercury. But, Jiminy 4 and 5 had proved to be pillars of confidence and a solid base from which to build. Let's begin this episode back in November of 1964, about halfway through the 11 months of training for the first manned Jiminy flight. It was then that Deke Slayton confidently told Wally Sherall that the Jiminy 3 backup crew would pilot the first rendezvous mission, Jiminy 6. The following February, Sherall let newsmen in on the secret that he and Thomas Stafford would be the first Americans to rendezvous and dock in space. Two months later, when the official crew announcement was made, NASA Public Affairs Officer Paul Haney joked, quote, the purpose of this news conference is to reveal one of the best-kept secrets in NASA history, the identification of the prime crew on Jiminy Titan 6. Gus Grissom and John Young received the backup assignments, reversing the crew roles for Jiminy 3 and Jiminy 6. You can probably recall Wally Sherall was an old-timer in NASA's manned spaceflight program. He was one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts selected five years earlier. He had already spent nine hours in space in 1962 as the astronaut of Mercury Atlas 8, also known as Sigma 7, which was the longest orbital flight yet achieved for the U.S. at that time. For more information on Wally, listen to episodes 16, 17, and 35. Thomas Stafford was born September 17, 1930, in Weatherford, Oklahoma, where he graduated from Weatherford High School in 1948. In 1952, he graduated with honors from the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, 
and he was commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. He received his pilot's wings at Connolly Air Force Base, Waco, Texas, in September of 1953. He completed advanced interceptor training and was assigned to the 54th Fighter Interceptor Squadron at Ellsworth Air Force Base, Rapid City, South Dakota. In December 1955, he was assigned to the 496th Fighter Interceptor Squadron, Hahn Air Base, Germany, where he performed the duties of pilot, flight leader, and flight test maintenance officer, flying F-86Ds. He was an instructor in flight test training and specialized academic subjects, establishing basic textbooks and directing the writing of flight test manuals for use by the staff and students. He is the co-author of the Pilot's Handbook for Performance Flight Testing and the Aerodynamics Handbook for Performance Flight Testing. Stafford was selected among the second group of NASA astronauts in September of 1962. Stafford was originally scheduled to fly with veteran astronaut Alan Shepard on the first manned Gemini mission, Gemini 3. But when Shepard was removed from the flight rotation due to an inner ear problem, Stafford was reassigned to backup pilot for Gemini 3. Now let's move on to flight scheduling. For quite some time, NASA had been wrestling with the order of flights. Which mission was to carry out what major program objective? Slow progress on some systems had forced a shuffling of task. A prime example was the problem field route of the Agena target vehicle to the launch pad, which affected schedules for both rendezvous and long-duration missions. When Charles Matthews took over the Gemini program, the Agena target vehicle was in serious trouble. Thus, flight schedules were changed to fly an Agena mission before the Gemini endurance test. Then, if a problem occurred, there would be time to work on the vehicle before the next rendezvous flight. Although Gemini Agena target vehicle 5001 had been shipped to Cape Kennedy in May of 1965, it was a test vehicle only, not qualified for flight. In August, NASA officially assigned Gemini Agena test vehicle 5002 to the first rendezvous mission. It was of better production quality than 5001, but NASA officials still doubted that its main engine could be trusted for docked maneuvers with a manned spacecraft. The Gemini program office firmly opposed firing the big engine. Now this was an old argument. Wallace Sherall, in particular, chafed at the limitation of not being able to fire the large engine. He put a lot of time and effort trying to remove that limitation. But in the end, he was not able to do that. Sherall was then willing to settle for a chance to try out the Agena's smaller secondary engines. And for a while, Sherall thought he had won his point. However, there was no reference to using the secondary engines in the final flight plan either. So Wally did not get in his way. Another concern about the mission was the rendezvous planning. At this time, rendezvous techniques remained largely in the realm of theory. 
When training for Gemini 6 began in the spring of 1965, little had yet been done toward planning crew procedures for making the maneuvers. Dean Grimm of the Manned Space Center's Flight Control Support Division joined forces with astronaut Edwin Buzz Aldrin, who had studied the pilot's role in rendezvous for his doctoral dissertation at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Back in 1963 and 64, Aldrin worked hard at selling the project office and flight operations on a concentric rendezvous. The target would be launched in a circular orbit 298 kilometers high, the spacecraft in a lower elliptical orbit. Since the spacecraft was closer to Earth, it took less time to circle the globe and could then catch up for a rendezvous. Aldrin and Grimm worked out the trajectories and maneuvers that would allow the spacecraft to intercept the target. A two-week review in April of 1965 convinced Grimm and Aldrin that MSC's plans for active human role in rendezvous were in poor shape. Most work seemed to stress a closed-loop concept that relied more on machines than on men. Radar and computer would make rendezvous nearly automatic. Of course, if either failed, so did the mission. Aldrin and Grimm believed the pilots should have an option if the equipment malfunctioned. Grimm went to St. Louis and persuaded McDonnell to rig a device that could simulate trajectories, orbital insertion, and spacecraft target rendezvous. A computer allowed flight profiles to be set up that varied the series of maneuvers leading to target interception. Astronauts learned what to do if any piece of equipment failed, and they profited from merely going through the motions as they tried to decide which procedure was useful and valid. For example, Chiral and Stafford rejected an early concept for doing rendezvous with the spacecraft inverted. An inverted spacecraft meant the astronaut's head would be down toward the Earth. They both disliked this method because they felt they lost their sense of direction. Overall, the prime crew participated in 50 complete rendezvous simulations. As Chiral and Stafford trained on the simulator, they took notes and discussed with Aldrin and the others the best procedures to use. These were then incorporated into the charts that would be carried in flight. Aside from the concerted efforts to qualify the Agena and to pull together rendezvous plans, Gemini 6 preparations were fairly routine. Measures taken to shorten the launch intervals between Gemini flights were surprisingly successful, and the October 25th launch date was not hard to meet. In April of 1965, Gemini Launch Vehicle 6 became the first Gemini Launch Vehicle to be erected in the new west cell of the vertical test facility at Martin, Baltimore. Tests on GLV-5 were still in progress on the old stand, now called the east cell. GLV-6 reached the Cape early in August and went into storage until Gemini 5 was launched. Spacecraft 6 arrived in Florida about the same time, but it did not go into storage. Instead, it was hoisted atop a timber tower for electronic compatibility test 
with the Agena 5002 because the target vehicle's command and communication systems had just undergone major modifications. These tests were originally intended as a one-time exercise for the first Agena, but they became a major part of the pre-launch checkout for all Gemini Agena missions. When the tests were completed, the test operations group was confident that the Agena 5002 would respond reliably to all spacecraft and ground control commands. Gemini 6 was the last of the program's battery-powered spacecraft without fuel cells. Relying on batteries only limited the flight to two days at most. In fact, Sherall thought the power would be pretty thin for even this amount of time. When the mission directive neared its final version by the end of September, it provided that the mission could be cut to one day if all objectives were completed. The crew, in other words, could come home as soon as they completed rendezvous and docking with the Agena. Everything else was secondary, even experiments. And there were only seven experiments. Two depended upon rendezvous with the Agena, one was medical, three were photographic, and one was passive. Sherall was quoted as saying, on my mission, we couldn't afford to play with experiments. Rendezvous was significant enough. End quote. The scheduled launch date for Gemini 6 and Atlas Agena 6 was October 25, 1965. The Atlas Agena would be launched first, and a little while later, the Gemini 6 would be launched and begin its chase of the Agena target vehicle. The planned mission duration was 46 hours 47 minutes for a total of 29 orbits. Gemini 6 was to land in the western Atlantic Ocean south of Bermuda. The mission was to include four dockings with the Agena target vehicle. The first docking was scheduled for T plus 5 hours and 45 minutes. The last docking was at T plus 10 hours and the final undocking would take place at T plus 18 hours. At 46 hours into the mission, the retro rockets were to be fired over the Pacific during the 29th orbit. Original mission plans also included the first live television coverage of the recovery of a U.S. spacecraft at sea from the recovery ship, the U.S. aircraft carrier WASP. The WASP was fitted with ground station equipment to relay live television via the Intelsat-1 satellite, also known as Early Bird. On launch day, October 25th, at Pad 14, a team from General Dynamics Corporation conducted the countdown of the Atlas launch vehicle capped by the slender Agena vehicle. Although this would be its maiden voyage in Project Gemini, Agena was a veteran of more than 140 flights since 1959. The countdown presided over by NASA Mission Director William Snyder proceeded simultaneously for the Atlas Agena and Gemini 6. The Gemini 6 was scheduled to launch 90 minutes after the Agena. At 15 minutes before the Atlas Agena was to leave its moorings, Sherall and Stafford climbed into the spacecraft and settled into their couches. Here's some countdown audio coverage. 
Here we are for the coverage of America's 10th manned space flight and undoubtedly the most difficult and significant uh, space flight by any nation since Russia's Yuri Gagarin orbited the Earth in 1961. For today, the United States is to attempt to rendezvous and docking, the meeting of two spacecrafts out in space, a vital maneuver if we are to go to the moon, a vital uh, test of the, the program for all future space flights. Charles uh, Von Fremd is at the Cape with an up-to-the-minute report as we wait for the first launching there scheduled in the next few moments. Charles? Yeah, Walter, uh, everything looks real good down here right now. There hasn't been a slightest delay in the uh, countdown on the Atlas Agena rocket. Uh, as of now, the countdown is going clickety-clack. We should be launching on the hour. The Atlas, one of the oldest and also one of the most reliable space booster rockets, is batting 28 for 30 in its most recent launches. And over on pad 19, 6,000 feet away, uh, Wally Schirra and uh, Stafford will depart there on a Titan II booster, which has a record of 22 successes out of 23 launches from the Cape. Uh, so the weather is cooperating. Everything looks go. But, of course, you never know, Walt. That's Charles. Filling you in now on the details of this day, in just three minutes and 22 seconds from now, that Atlas booster with its 360,000 pounds of thrust, it stands there some 66 feet high on top of it at 26 feet of the Agena target vehicle. It's 26 feet long, 5 feet in uh, diameter, and that vehicle will go up into orbit very shortly. In three minutes from now, the countdown is at T minus 258. It goes up to 185 miles, it is hoped, makes one circuit of the Earth, and then as it comes over Cape Kennedy on its first trip around, the Gemini will be launched atop its Titan rocket. Up in the white room, they're just about to seal the astronauts Wally Shira and Tom Stafford into their capsule. The doors are supposed to be latched there just about the time that the Gina is being launched from that pad a little over a mile to the south of them. Perhaps they will be able to see it out the windows of the White Room, although it seems doubtful. They'll certainly be able to hear it because actually 6,000 feet, which is the distance between those two pads, isn't very great. It's 1,500 feet, as a matter of fact, inside the normal safety requirements that they normally clear. T-minus 40 seconds. At this point in the blockhouse at launch, con at launch complex 14, the Atlas test conductor is just looking at a series of lights on his console. These ready lights will turn green. When all of them are green, we will be ready to go. T-minus 25 seconds and counting. There will be a momentary hold at T-minus 19 when we press the ignition switch. T-minus 17 seconds. T-minus 15. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. It's holding momentarily at 4. We have ignition. And a lift off right on the button. Right on the arrow. There again goes that fiery plume of the Atlas. We haven't seen such uh, a spectacular takeoff in the manned space program since Atlas boosted the Mercury astronauts aloft. Now Atlas, the workhorse of the missile fleet, putting that Agena up into orbit. It looks like a perfect flight. So far, the takeoff has been perfect. This has to be a perfect one. 
That Agena has to reach an altitude of 185 miles on a perfect circular orbit. It can be corrected by onboard guidance machinery a slight amount, but basically it's got to go into a good orbit if this rendezvous is to be achieved today. We'll know that about 10 minutes from now when this uh, rocket is right going into orbit there over Bermuda. At 10 a.m., General Dynamics Chief Thomas J. O'Malley pushed the button that sent the Atlas Agena skyward. Signs that something was wrong appeared minutes later when the target vehicle cut loose from the booster. The Agena seemed to be wobbling, even as its attitude control system labored to keep it stable. The small secondary engines ignited and the gas generator valve opened to fire the main engine and boost the Agena to orbit. A telemetry signal in Mission Control Center showed that the big engine had started exactly on time, but that was the last good news. In Houston, Snyder, whose thought Agena's always flew, was astounded to learn there was a problem. In fact, Air Force radar was tracking what seemed to be five pieces of the target vehicle. In the meantime, Public Affairs Officer Paul Haney trying to keep the public informed, had little or nothing to report. Ten minutes after liftoff, he could only repeat that no telemetry signals were coming into the station along the flight control network, and that over on Pad 19, Sherall and Stafford were continuing their preparations for flight. After 50 minutes, the last flicker of hope gone, Haney told his listeners, quote, we have had a conversation with the Canaveran tracking station, and their report keeps coming back. No joy, no joy, end quote. The mission was scrubbed. Here's a clip. We had a momentary uh, dropout on our telemetry, according to the Agena controller. He says he cannot confirm the start of the PPS of the primary propulsion system burn at this point. We'll watch that not necessarily fatal. We'll watch some other aspects here before we can uh, give you additional information on the Agena burn. If all telemetry is out from the Agena, it would mean that this mission is scrubbed before the Gemini ever gets off the ground. They have to have the telemetry reports from the uh, Agena. That is the only source they have for uh, adequate information from the Agena. It can be tracked by ground-based radar, of course, but that would not be adequate for this flight. Uh, this is a critical moment at uh, Houston as they wait to see if that telemetry can be restored to the Agena. The... Uh, there are so many ifs in this program, any one of the ifs could uh, throw it off, uh, but uh, one of the major ifs, uh, if the Agena gets into its proper orbit, uh, or an orbit that can be corrected by its uh, onboard propulsion system, then Gemini will go. But if Agena is not placed in its proper orbit, the uh, Gemini spacecraft with the two astronauts aboard waiting at Cape Kennedy will wait. It will not go. And uh, if uh, the mission has to be scrubbed entirely, the Gemini, of course, will not be launched at all. In that case, here's more from Paul Haney, apparently. primary transmitter from the Agena, the primary telemetry transmitter, right at about the point when the primary propulsion system in the Agena should have come on. We saw the chamber pressure rise in the Agena, and then we experienced this dropout of telemetry. So we... We're eight minutes and 40 seconds 
is uh, Gemini Control Houston. Uh, Carnarvon should have acquired the spacecraft at 51 minutes and 7 seconds after the hour. Uh, we've had a running conversation with them over the last two minutes, and their report keeps coming back, no joy, no joy. The mission has been scrubbed. We have scrubbed the mission for the day. Uh, because Carnarvon has not acquired, we can assume the Agena vehicle went into the Atlantic some 5,500 miles short of the desired velocity. Actually, only six minutes after launch, a sense of failure was spreading among those closely connected with the Agena target vehicle's development. Jeremy Hammock, who kept tabs on the Agena for the Gemini Project Office, was in the Pad 14 blockhouse listening to the flight controller's comments. He was soon convinced that there was deep trouble. The Air Force officer in charge of Atlas Agena launches, Colonel Allen, thought the Agena had probably exploded. The two men headed for the Lockheed hangar, where others also gathered for the wake. Hasty study of partial telemetry data threw little light on the cause of the disaster, but newsmen were clamoring for a press conference. NASA and Air Force officials told the reporters that they did not know exactly what had caused the failure, but that 10 days might be enough time to decide what to do to keep it from happening again. The gloom and doom that descended upon Gemini was quickly pierced by a ray of hope. While the futile countdown for the Gemini 6 launch was still underway, Frank Borman rushed from the outside viewing stand to the Cape Kennedy Launch Control Center to find out what had happened. He found himself standing with Gemini 7 crewmate Jim Lovell near two McDonnell officials, Spacecraft Chief Walter Burke and his deputy, John Yardley. The astronauts heard Burke ask Yardley, Why couldn't we just launch a Gemini as the target vehicle instead of an Agena? Borman listened with growing excitement as the McDonnell idea jailed. What he heard made sense. Burke and Yardley found NASA manned spaceflight chief George Mueller and Gemini manager Charles Matthews and tried out their idea on them. Neither NASA official gave it much of a chance. The two McDonnell engineers left the building to see if they could sell their concept elsewhere. Burke's brainstorm was built on more than just a vaguely recalled Martin proposal. Shortening the launch interval to two months had proven that hardware could be put into the pipeline faster than in the past. But, if Gemini 7 were to be the target for Gemini 6, the two vehicles would have to be launched less than two weeks apart. Mueller and Matthews simply refused to believe that it could be done. Burke and Yardley now recalled a proposal put forth back in August of 1965 for a rapid turnaround of the launch vehicle. The proposal was the result of collaboration between Martin Chief at Kennedy, Joseph Verlander, and Colonel John Albert, Chief Gemini Launch Vehicle Division. They proposed getting a fully checked Gemini Titan ready for launch and then parking it somewhere while a second launch vehicle was prepared for flight. One problem was how to move the first booster, since the engine contractor, Aerojet General, insisted that the vehicle had to remain upright once it had been erected and checked out. The answer to that was a Sikorsky S-64 Skycrane. 
a helicopter powerful enough to lift and carry the upright Titan II. It was really quite a simple plan, though carrying it out might involve a lot of complexities. After a booster and spacecraft had been checked out in the usual manner, the spacecraft would be transferred to bonded storage and the launch vehicle would be hauled by helicopter to nearby Pad 20, which was not in use at that time. Then a second booster and payload would be readied on Pad 19 and launched. The stored and parked vehicles would be immediately returned to the pad and launched in five to seven days. However, in August, no one was really interested in that plan. However, two months later, in the aftermath of an exploded Agena, the idea looked a little better, at least to Burke and Yardley, but they still failed to convince anyone that it would work. Instead, Cape leadership was working on the idea of moving the Gemini 7 spacecraft to the Gemini 6 launch vehicle that was ready to go, in hopes that the Gemini 7 could proceed with its long-duration mission in a timely manner before Gemini 6's next rendezvous attempt with Agena. But it was eventually determined that the Gemini 6 launch vehicle did not have enough power to lift the heavier Gemini 7 spacecraft into orbit, so that idea was scrubbed. Now the Cape leaders were forced to consider the Burke-Yardley suggestion that they had scorned before. As they tinkered with a tentative work schedule for a nine-day pad checkout, additionally, with two spacecraft in space at the same time, they would have to figure out a way to communicate and track both vehicles. After much discussion, they arrived at a new proposal. The new proposal would change the name of Gemini 6 to Gemini 6A to distinguish it from the originally planned mission whose objective had been to rendezvous with the Agena. Now Gemini 7 would be launched first before Gemini 6A and it would be considered the target vehicle effectively replacing the Agena. After Gemini 7 lifted off, Flight control would be carried out in the normal manner while the pad was being prepared for the Gemini 6A launch. Once the flight controllers were sure the orbiting spacecraft was operating properly, Mission Control in Houston would concentrate on Gemini 6A and the old Mercury tracking network would watch Gemini 7, record data, and send information by teletype to the Houston controllers. This mode would continue until the complicated rendezvous mission ended and 6A returned to Earth. Then Gemini 7 would become the focus of communications again. Flight Director Kraft was convinced that the operation could be carried out safely. He told his mission planning and analysis division to set up the flight plan so the second launch could take place as soon as the pad was ready. After more discussion, the proposal was approved locally and NASA Administrator Webb forwarded it to the President, who was at his ranch near Austin, Texas. The President approved the proposal and on October 28th, a press conference was held at the Texas White House to announce the Gemini 7-6A rendezvous mission. That a plan of such scope could be suggested discussed, approved, and announced in scarcely three days after the failed Agena 
was a sign of the managerial and technical trust that Jiminy had already come to inspire. William D. Moyers, the president's press secretary, told the news media about the plan and answered questions from reporters. Moyers said the mission was targeted for January, but back at MSC, everyone from Gilruth on down was working toward an early December flight. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.